Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us on this Monday. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. There's a lot to get to. On Monday, January 8th, this breaking overnight, major new details released into why a critical part of an Alaska Airlines plane blew off mid-flight, what we're learning about new warnings that may have been missed. And there's one week to go until the Iowa caucuses. The Republican candidates, they are out in full force. Donald Trump's campaign message will come from not one, but two courthouses this week. And they were arrested, they were convicted, and they are serving prison time for their role in the January 6th insurrection. But the former president, some top Republicans calling jailed Capitol rioters hostages. CNN This Morning starts right now. Here's where we begin new this morning. A crucial missing piece of an Alaska Airlines plane has been found as investigators try to figure out why a gaping hole blew open on the side of the jet mid-flight after it took off from Portland. Now, the NDSB says the Boeing Max or 737 Max's door plug was discovered in somebody's backyard. These new images from investigators inside the plane show headrests and seat cushions ripped off. We're now learning a pressurization warning light previously went off on this plane multiple times, including the day before the terrifying flight. Listen to this passenger describe the chaos on board, a child whose shirt was torn off his body. She was screaming, my son, my son, my son. And, you know, I wasn't sure if her son had gone out or if he was injured, but they just kept saying the son, the son. And the flight attendant went back to check on him and they verified that he thankfully was okay, but had lost his shirt and his skin was irritated from the cold and from the wind and everything. And it was, it was insane. Let's bring in CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine. Pete, you've been doing really excellent reporting on this. We got a lot of new detail overnight. Alaska Airlines, we know, has canceled more than 100 flights today. The NTSB trying to figure out how this all happened. Yeah, some incredible new details overnight, yeah. Poppy. Finding that part of the plane that has been missing has been key. It's called a door plug, and that will help investigators determine the type of the failure here. Was it a mechanical failure, or was it a manufacturing defect by Boeing or its contractors? Just yesterday, the head of the NTSB told me that if this door was in somebody's backyard, she wanted to see it, and that is exactly what happened, found by a Portland school teacher simply named Bob, a crucial finding in an investigation that is only just beginning. And it was very violent uh, when the uh, rapid decompression in the door uh, was expelled uh, out of the plane. New images from the National Transportation Safety Board show the force of the failure on board Alaska Airlines Flight 1282. Damaged and contorted seats from a 400 mile per hour rush of air through a refrigerator sized hole ripped in the side of the plane. The headrests on 25A and 26A were gone. The extra oxygen mask was sheared off. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homedy now says even the cockpit door flew open. 
the time there is a bang, the door flies op open. It did eventually shut, but it did blow open uh, during the explosive decompression. Amazingly, no passengers were seriously hurt. I woke up to the plane just falling and I knew it was not just normal turbulence because the masks came down and that's when the panic definitely started to set in. The flight departed Portland International Airport at 5.07 p.m. on Friday. Six minutes in, climbing through 16,000 feet, passengers describe multiple bangs and the loud rush of air, audible as pilots radioed air traffic control to make an emergency landing back in Portland. The plane, a Boeing 737 MAX 9, only months old, it took its first flight on October 15th and flew only 150 flights for Alaska Airlines. Investigators say a pressurization warning light came on three previous times, including the day before this incident and prompting Alaska Airlines to restrict the plane from overwater flights. It, it's certainly a concern uh, and it's one that we want to dig into. The Federal Aviation Administration has now grounded MAX 9s until airlines can make new inspections. But the incident has once again thrust Boeing under the microscope. Two fatal crashes grounded the 737 MAX for 20 months in the U.S. The NTSB also said the pilot's checklist and headsets were thrown off by the force of the depressurization. There's one thing missing from this investigation, though, the cockpit voice recorder. That was overwritten, the NTSB says, probably not for nefarious reasons, though. Alaska Airlines and United Airlines are the only two U.S. airlines operating MAX 9s. They are still grounded this morning. They are awaiting new details from inspections from the FAA. United canceled 270 flights that would have otherwise been operated by Bax 9s over the weekend. Pete, I think the question I certainly had uh, all weekend and many people have is what is happening at Boeing, specifically with these planes, and should any of these MAX planes be flying? Well, of course, Boeing will be a big party of this investigation. It says it's cooperating right now. CEO Dave Calhoun just sent a company-wide memo to all of Boeing saying that there will be a safety meeting uh, headquartered from its Renton, Washington factory. That's the factory where the MAX 9 is built, essentially a safety stand down, although in pre-market trading this morning, Boeing shares are already down. We will see as the response goes on. We're also curious about the response from a company named Spirit Aerosystems. That's the contractor that makes many parts of the fuselage on the MAX 9. And of course, investigators will want to hear from them as well. For sure. Pete, thanks for the great reporting. Well, this morning, the countdown, it is on. There are six days, 17 hours, 53 minutes, 28 seconds until the Iowa caucuses. And today, Vivek Ramaswamy is crisscrossing the state with events. His GOP rival, Nikki Haley, will be in Des Moines as caucus day draws near. The candidates hammering home the importance of voter turnout as this outcome could make or break momentum in the race. CNN's Eva McCann is live for us in Des Moines, Iowa. Eva, when you talk to voters right now, what's their sense of how this is all going to play out in the next six days? Well, good morning to you, Phil. You know, the voters that we speak to here in Iowa, many of them are still making up their minds. They take the fact that Iowa goes first very seriously. They want to vet these candidates because they know that a big finish here for any of these candidates could mean significant momentum and that they could go on to play in other states.
All eyes are now on Iowa. Haley DeSantis, Ramaswamy, and Trump all converged on Iowa over the weekend. Now's the time to be active. Now's the time where you guys can make a difference. With just one week remaining before the Iowa caucus, the GOP candidates are pouring millions of dollars into the first voting state, flooding the airwaves in an attempt to challenge former President Trump's considerable lead in the polls. You know, backstage they say to me sometimes, sir, don't tell them that they're going to vote for you. That sounds so demeaning. I said, I got them $28 billion for their farmers. Of course they're going to vote. DeSantis and Haley could not avoid speaking about the front runner. I think if we're relitigating the, the past elections, if it's about, you know, Donald Trump or his legal issues or criminal trials or all that stuff, you know, I think it's going to be a really nasty election. I don't think that puts Republicans in a good position to win. He was really good at breaking things. He just wasn't good at fixing them. Trump is looking for a decisive victory in the Hawkeye state after losing the Iowa caucus back in 2016. However, Iowans are split on who they'll support. I think it's highly likely that Trump will come out first. I'll be voting for DeSantis. I would like to see uh, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, be in the race as long as he can be. Trump held a rally in Iowa on the third anniversary of the January 6th Capitol attack during which he gave his support for those jailed for their actions that day. They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. And raised eyebrows when he made this comment about the Civil War. They could have been negotiated and they wouldn't have had that problem, but it was a, tell it was a hell of a time. This week, the former president will be toggling back and forth from the campaign trail to the courtroom with a jam-packed schedule. On Tuesday, he will be in a D.C. courtroom where opening arguments will be held on his immunity claim. On Wednesday, he will be back in Iowa for a town hall event. And on Thursday, he will be in a New York City courtroom where the closing arguments in the civil fraud case against him, his sons, and the Trump organization will begin. And a bit of a wrinkle, Phil. It is expected to snow in the coming hours, and that has already led to the cancellation of some events. And it comes at a time when candidates really have no time to spare. They're using every single day until caucus day to shake every hand, meet every voter. Phil? Even the weather causing issues at this point in time in the final sprint. Eva McKen, thanks so much. And this Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, Jake Tapper and Dana Bash moderate CNN's Republican presidential debate live from Iowa. You don't want to miss it. We have a lot more to talk about. One week until Iowa and Donald Trump once again mocking a prisoner of war while praising jailed insurrectionists. How the former president is reframing the Capitol attack. And what a key player in Hamas hostage talks says could complicate those efforts even more. Stay with us. They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. They ought to release them. I call them hostages. Some people call them prisoners. I call them hostages. Release the J6 hostages, Joe. Release them, Joe. You can do it real easy, Joe. That was Donald Trump calling for the release of January 6th rioters. You heard multiple times there he called them hostages on the third anniversary, no less, of the Capitol attack that caught on fast with Trump allies. Listen. 
I have concerns about the treatment of January 6 hostages. Uh, I have concerns. We have a role in Congress of oversight over our treatments of prisoners. Uh, and I believe that we're seeing the weaponization of the federal government against not just President Trump, but we're seeing it against conservatives. We're seeing it against Catholics. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so proud to serve on the Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Government. A new Washington Post poll shows a growing number of voters actually share that sentiment. 34% of Republicans say they believe the false idea, it's not a false idea, it's a lie, that the FBI organized and encouraged the January 6th attack. A new article in Politico finds many Trump supporters think the former president has unfairly shouldered blame for an attack that they believe was overblown. One Iowa voter telling Politico, quote, there was no insurrection, I believe he's being framed. Another saying, quote, I watched it on TV that day, and I said, this is a complete joke. I could tell from the beginning that this was a setup. Let's bring in to discuss CNN senior political analyst John Avalon, former Republican strategist and pollster Lee Carter, and CNN political commentator Jamal Simmons. Lee, I, I want to start with you because I, I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of this, <laughs> uh, very personal thoughts on some level. But what I'm more interested in at this moment in time is you have a weekend where Donald Trump on the anniversary of January 6th is saying all the things we played. He's attacking John McCain once again, uh, and mocking the injuries he suffered while a POW. Um, these are the things that caused independent voters and suburban voters to turn sharply away from him in 2020. Yes. I understand where the Republican primary electorate is and that it's not going to change. My question right now is, will people start seeing this stuff and say, oh, I remember? Yeah. <laughs> I, I absolutely think so. I mean, when you look at the independent voter, they turned away from Donald Trump for this very reason. They couldn't deal with the rhetoric. They couldn't deal with all of the, the things that we're seeing right now. Um, and Joe Biden is reminding those independent voters exactly how bad it can be and what's at stake. And so I think that is Joe Biden's strategy right now. The real question is, is it going to work? With both of these candidates right now, in many ways, it feels like we're looking back in time and not forward. I mean, the fact that he's going back to some of these talking points about McCain, I feel like we're back in 2020, 2016. We're not looking forward. And I think the American people want us to look forward. So my big question is, is this going to work? Is it going to turn people off so much that they're not going to go out in the record numbers that we saw in 2020? Instead of, in, in 2020, we had a, a really energized electorate who said, we've got to go out and vote because this much is at stake. This might exhaust people. Well, to, to Lee's good point about people wanting to look forward, not backward. Trump is looking backward there, obviously, but so is Biden with these new ads, staking his campaign on defending democracy, pointing to January 6th. Mitt Romney, not a Trump fan. <laughs> uh, yes, a Republican, but not a Trump Sorry. fan, is saying that tactic for the Biden campaign is a bust. Yeah, I, I could be uninformed, but I'm not sure what Mitt Romney knows about winning the presidency. Um, it, and I think that there is a... Uh, there are Democrats who are concerned about the way they're approaching this, like Obama. Sure, absolutely. Um, but I, I wouldn't take my professional political advice from Mitt Romney <laughs> when it comes time to win the presidency. Listen, you have a president, former president right now, Donald Trump, who is saying to people out loud, I will be a dictator on the first day. Uh, I want to use the DOJ, the Department of Justice, to go after my opponents. So the idea of democracy being on the ballot isn't just a, you know, four years ago problem. It's a problem that the current candidate from the Republican nomination is saying he will challenge the tenets of democracy right now. And I think the challenge for all of us is 
what Donald Trump does is he continues to move the ball further and further away from the norms that we all expect. And then he raises the stakes on holding him accountable. And so what happens is he never gets held, he never gets held responsible. He never has to answer for what it is he's doing, and he makes the rest of us coarser. And so I think um, the president is trying to get people refocused on democracy as a question, and that's a legitimate political argument. John, I I think to that point, a complicating factor six days out from the caucuses is that other Republicans in the race are trying to compete with that, an electorate that that issue resonates with very clearly. And and so if you're Ron DeSantis and you're Nikki Haley, besides the CNN debate, which you should definitely watch... What are, what are your opportunities in this moment to try and make headway? Draw a clear contrast with Donald Trump. Stand for something. Stop tiptoeing around. Connect with real voters and say, as I think Nikki Haley did it very effectively in her town hall the other night, uh, say, that this is an invitation to more chaos. This is an invitation to someone who's got unbelievable amounts of baggage. And start having the courage to call out the unacceptable. This, this rhetorical dodge calling, the pe- holding people accountable who attacked our capital to overturn an election, at his behest, calling them hostages. At a time when there are hostages being held in Israel, American hostages being held by terrorists in Israel. That kind of moral equivalence is absolutely inexcusable. And for Elise Stefanik to do that sort of performative show of fealty, right? They always take the knee, is what Donald Trump has said about his Republican leaders. Well, I'll say something about Democrats, though. I, you're, you know, you know I, I get the joke about Mitt Romney, but I think it was also unkind, especially given the courage he has shown. And especially given that for, for President Biden needs to be running the broadest possible coalition to, to, to vend democracy, if that's serious. And, and for Mitt Romney, I'm down. I, I interviewed Adam Kinzinger about this. All these, you know, never Trump Republicans who, that diminishes them. These pro-democracy Republicans mm-hmm. who've taken a stand against Donald Trump, they have not gotten outreach from the White House or the Biden campaign. You've got it, which is unbelievable. But 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 that's what you know, I was told in an interview that broader coalition needs to be built and that needs to be taken more seriously than anything else. Um, the president does have a broad coalition. He does have to animate that broad coalition. Um, and I think he's got to focus. The, the Barack Obama concerns are the concerns he's taken into account. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama won re-elections. Barack Obama won one at a time that was economically distressful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he and his team need to be able to focus. But the Biden team understands something about the modern media and political environment that nobody else understands. They know how to operate in this environment, and they've beaten Donald Trump before. I think they're taking that as their cue to go out and try to beat him again. Their advice is the same as Mitt Romney's, though. I mean, they're saying the same thing. So it's, I, I mean, I think a lot of people are sure, saying. I'll listen to them. I just won't listen to Mitt Romney. <laughs> That's my choice. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I agree that we need to have a, a coalition that's really embraced instead of dismissed. I think that if this, if this is going to work, when you look at the, the numbers too, 55% of Republicans do, do agree that democracy is at stake here. So it's not, you know, we're, we're not talking about people that are completely dismissive of this. But what's sort of stunning is that more Republicans now view the actions of the rioters on January 6th as appropriate than did three years ago. That's right. It's not a majority of Republicans, but it's stunning to see that more approve of it and fewer strongly disapprove of it. And fewer think that Trump was responsible for it. Yeah, that's right. That's evidence of a non-reality-based community. And that's disinformation that's been pushed out by Donald Trump. You want to have the courage to draw the contrast? Call it out. All right, guys, stick around. We have a lot more to get to. Not just the primaries or the caucuses, but also a general election as well. Yeah, and this morning, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is still being treated at Walter Reed Medical Center. The president and his deputy did not know about Lloyd's hospitalization. That is still under scrutiny this morning. And congressional leaders have just taken the first steps to averting a government shutdown. We're going to break down what's in and what's not in the latest top-line spending agreement. Stay with us. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The handling of this by the Secretary of Defense is totally unacceptable. I think it was a dereliction of duty and... uh, uh, and, uh, and the secretary and the administration, frankly, need to step forward uh, and give the American people the facts. That was former Vice President Mike Pence ripping into Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin for keeping his hospital- hospitalization secret. This morning, Austin remains in the hospital a week after being rushed to Walter Reed for what we're told was, quote, severe pain following an elective procedure. He's now facing intense scrutiny for keeping the president and national security leaders in the dark for days about the hospital stay. Here's the timeline that we are getting now from the Pentagon. Austin had this elective procedure on the 22nd of December, went home the next day. Then on the 1st of January, was taken by an ambulance and admitted to the intensive care unit with severe pain. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was notified the next day. That was January 2nd. Austin's deputy, Kathleen Hicks, assumed some of his duties on that day, but she wasn't told that he was hospitalized until January 4th. That's the same day President Biden found out. Congress learned January 5th, a day later, as did the rest of the public. The Pentagon says Austin is still at the hospital, but resumed his duties on Friday. The White House says President Biden spoke to Austin on Saturday and, quote, has complete confidence in him. Austin released a statement on Saturday saying he would commit to being more transparent in the future. Senior medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner joins us now. He's been former Vice President Dick Cheney's cardiologist when Cheney was in office, and seeing a national security reporter, Natasha Bertrand, is at the Pentagon. Natasha, I want to start with you. Look, I've covered Washington 15, 16 years. I have never seen anything like this. What are national security officials you're talking to saying? Well, look, Phil, the words that are being tossed around a lot at this moment are unforced error. Uh, All of this really could have been avoided, uh, officials say, if the Pentagon had just disclosed within 24 hours that the secretary had been hospitalized on January 1st. Now, what we know at this point is that for days, uh, the U.S., uh, the Pentagon did not inform even his deputy uh, secretary of defense just why she was taking over his responsibilities. And we should remind viewers that she was actually in Puerto Rico at the time. She was not even in Washington, D.C. when she was told that she would have to be assuming uh, some of his responsibilities in order to uh, continue secure communications and maintain kind of operational readiness. And just on Thursday, about four days after he was admitted to the hospital, that is when she was finally told that he was hospitalized. And so this is really, uh, you know, coming at a moment that is not uh, ideal, really, for the administration, given all of the tensions we are seeing in the Middle East. The fact that the Secretary of Defense 
was not uh, available, really, and that the president and senior national security officials did not know uh, that he was in the hospital in the intensive care unit, uh, we should know. This is not something minor, uh, is, is really problematic, according to current and former officials that we have spoken to. And the Pentagon press secretary, Patrick Ryder, he told us that the reason that these notifications were not made earlier is because Austin's chief of staff uh, was sick herself, and therefore she could not do so uh, before Thursday, which is when everyone started being notified that he was in the hospital. But of course, the, the immediate follow-up question is, well, was no one else available uh, to notify the appropriate uh, people that he was, in fact, indisposed? And we did not get an answer to that question. And he has put out a statement since saying, I recognize I could have done a better job of informing the public, and I commit to doing better next time. As a doctor, Jonathan, is there any medical reason why this would not have been disclosed? Or is this simply a, he was in the ICU, his chief of staff was sick, and there was no one else? You know, I think, Poppy, that this is most likely a mistake that snowballed. Uh, it, it looks like the, the secretary had a procedure uh, that was uh, where he was told he'd maybe be in the hospital overnight, be out the next day. Uh, the procedure was scheduled for, you know, right over the Christmas uh, weekend and the Christmas holiday when, uh, you know, perhaps government is a little bit quieter and he thought that he can have this quick procedure, be out the next day and then just be on, be on to his business. But unfortunately, uh, 10 days later, he suffered this a significant complication requiring a, what looks like emergency hospitalization. And if you haven't disclosed that you had surgery, you know, a week ago, and now you have to go back for emergency uh, hospitalization. Now you're going to have to disclose that. And why didn't you disclose the original procedure? And it and it snowballs until he can no longer, uh, you know, remain silent about the hospitalization. So, to me, it looks like it's probably just an, you know, unfortunate set of circumstances that started with an unfortunate decision to keep his hospitalization uh, away from the the government. I don't think the public necessarily has, has a right to know that the Secretary of Defense was having surgery. He's not the president or the vice president where, where I do think the public has a right to know. But I do think his chain of command needed to know. Natasha, just for clarity here, we still don't know what the procedure actually was or what he's been dealing with over the course of the last couple of days, do we? We don't. We don't know what the original surgery was that caused these complications, and we don't know where exactly he was experiencing this very severe pain uh, that prompted him to call an ambulance and an ambulance for him to take uh, to take him uh, to Walter Reed on New Year's Day. And that is, of course, part of what we're asking. And and look, I think that you know the secretary is a very private person. Anyone who knows him will tell you that. And the issue here is not that he did not disclose this elective surgery uh, to the public. The issue that is being raised by national security officials is simply that they were kept in the dark for so long, even though many uh, people here in the Pentagon were told that he would just be on leave last week and they assumed that he was working from home. So it's being kept in the dark about this that is really raising questions. Natasha, thank you for the reporting. Dr. Reiner, appreciate it. Thanks. Well, today, President Biden will speak at the historic Mother Emanuel AME Church in South Carolina. It comes as key Biden allies are expressing some concerns with his campaign. And it is being called an exceptional winter storm right now. The southeast is bracing for heavy rain, dangerous winds, possible tornadoes as a quick moving storm passes through some 70 million people along the Gulf Coast and southeast at risk for severe weather today and tomorrow as the system shifts north. This week, some areas in the Northeast could see heavy snow, blizzard conditions, 
potential tornadoes up here and severe flooding. Back in a moment. There's the White House on a fine what month is it? It's January. Oh, yeah. January. It's an election year as well. Uh, morning in Washington, D.C. And as we look at the White House, the man who lives there, President Biden, looking to re-energize his re-election campaign, he's set to travel to South Carolina today where he will speak at the historic Mother Emanuel AME Church. It is steeped in African-American history, and it's where a white supremacist shot and killed nine black parishioners in 2015. Biden is expected to stress the importance of preserving democracy and combating hate. The black vote in South Carolina was key to Biden's path to the Democratic nomination. You'll remember in 2020, thanks in large part to the endorsement of Congressman James Clyburn. But now Clyburn says he is worried about part of Biden's reelection campaign. And here's why. I'm very concerned and I have sat down with President Biden. My problem is that we have not been able to break through uh, that MAGA wall in order to get to people exactly what this president has done. Back with us, John Avalon, Jamal Simmons, and Lee Carter. Okay, so this also goes to what we were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier, Jamal, which is the warning, apparently, according to the Washington Post, that former President Obama gave President Biden at a lunch they had at the White House in the last couple of months, it wasn't reported before, talking about uh, the political ability of Trump to pull this off and win again, and some concerns that President Obama has about the way that Biden's campaign is being run. I should note that Quentin Folks, obviously the deputy campaign manager, was on NBC yesterday. Here's what he said about the campaign. Listen. Look, our campaign has been awake since the president announced in April, which is why we've come out the gate swinging. Doesn't sound like they think there is a concern. Is there? Should there be? There should definitely be a concern. Okay. The numbers aren't great, right? And so, <laughs> is that like a fair thing to say? The numbers That's aren't great. Um, so they've got to spend some time uh, getting the message out. Listen, I think the fundamentals are right, right? The economy is going in the right direction. Democracy is an issue we know has won in the past. Um, the, the women's right for an abortion is an issue that has won in the past. What's not going well are the theatrics around the campaign, right? So they've got to do better about getting out there, talking about these issues, talking to them, talking to people in a way that they're going to hear it. I think we're seeing it this week from the president, the president doing the big speech on democracy on Friday night, going back to Mother Emanuel and having that conversation. So I think they're trying, they're starting to sort of gin that up. The last thing I'll say is there's a lot of things that happen in campaigns are like icebergs, right? Like there are all these things that are happening underneath the waterline. And there's a bunch of stuff that's happening. They're testing messages. They're spending money in, org- in communities to like figure out who's there they should be talking to, reaching out politically. So there's a lot of things happening in the campaign that we're just not seeing. I think this is a really backwards looking campaign, though. And I think they're looking at the numbers and they're saying we need to fix the problem. So they say, OK, younger voters We've lost them by 24 points. Black voters, we lost 14 points since the election. So we need to go out and do what we did in 2020, remind them all of what they went out to vote for in 2020. And I'm not sure it's the same thing that's going to get them to vote in 2024 than it was in 2020. I think they need both to remind people of what's at stake, but also talk about how how things are going to be moving forward. And I think they really need to get honest with the American people and, 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 and relate with them in a way and say, like, we feel your pain. We can't just say it's never been better. We can't just say we're on the right track because people don't feel it. So I think that there's a lot of missteps being made. And I tend to agree with President Obama that they need to take a look at how they're running this. Look, campaign. compelling reelections build on the base the first time around, right? 
And, and that, you know, it's not simply enough to retain that base. I mean, that, that, right. that's not remotely sufficient. And it's interesting because you haven't heard Biden necessarily say, here's what I would do in a second term. Here's what a second term I will deliver that will be new. Um, and, and, and there's a lot you can try to say. I think that's what's missing. But yeah, what's and, missing. And, and I think that's, that's a real issue they gotta, they got to take seriously. The problem is not in the bunting. It's not in the theatrics. The problem seems to be more fundamental, and they got to take that seriously. Look, go to Mother Emanuel. Um, that's less than a mile from where my folks live. That is an iconic place, not just in South Carolina, but should be in the nation. It's an opportunity also to talk about the wages of hate, mm. uh, the dangers of white nationalism and Christian nationalism to our collective culture. The, the historic and periodic resistance to multiracial democracy that has characterized our country's history. And to try to bring that all together. But you're going to also have to do that in a way that makes people feel you understand their, their kitchen table issues, as well as defending democracy, and say, here's what a second term, here's what I will deliver exactly. in a way that's bigger than me. And, and those are all areas he's got to improve. I will say, when you talk to campaign folks, like the drive towards the State of the Union address in March, which is what we're seeing in both the event on Saturday, the event today, and what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, I think will be a critical thing. I want to swing back to Clyburn, because mm-hmm. Jim Clyburn, for people who forget, you know, he made Joe Biden president of the United States. I'm getting that's right. Yeah. And Biden folks acknowledge that. Like, without him... Joe Biden does not do what he did in the primaries mm-hmm. and shock everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he was wearing a Clyburn fish fry T-shirt. <laughs> under <Yeah. laughs> and that um, he a great event, they listened the to him at the White House for good reason. Mm-hmm. And what I was struck was not only what he said there, which I, I think resonates, but also our team has a great digital right this morning on this and had a follow up interview with him where he made the point. Uh, He's, he's, Biden is so effective because people feel Joe Biden. Basically, he needs to be out. It's what you guys are all saying. He needs to be out because when he's out, people feel him. He can talk about what he's doing and what he wants to do. And it resonates in a different way than here's an ad or here's a speech or here's, yeah. a, you know, a teleprompter. Do they understand that? Does the campaign understand that? And the campaign does understand that. They also are trying to figure out how to manage this thing about his age. Right. Because this is the fundamental question that shows up in every single community about why people are concerned about Joe Biden is about his age. And I think, (laughs) you know, Grandpa Joe might be the thing that people finally rally around. We're looking at chaos on one side and they try to say, like, oh, well, uh, Donald Trump wants to take the country in a direction that none of us really agree with. We've seen it in three separate elections, 2018, 2020 and 2022. Versus Joe Biden, who is trying to hold this country together and actually take us to the future that there's, it is that we want. And to there's got to be a way to do it. When you talked about the theatrics, there's got to be a way to theatrically do this in a way that shows Joe Biden in a really positive light and not a negative light. I mean, we we had presidents who were paralyzed and nobody knew it. There's ways to visually make this. <laughs> I know it's a different era. I know it's a Slightly different, different era. Different era. I, know, I, know, I appreciate I the Woodrow Wilson part two, Edith Bollingalt, first female president <laughs> reference, or this early in the morning. But, but I mean, the problem is it's got to be about a cause bigger than an individual, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's the deal here. You're running against somebody who tried to overthrow our democracy. And this should not be a close race, but it clearly is in part because you've got four independent candidates skewing the, the numbers. And you've got a tenor in the country that's real troubling. So this is an opportunity to rise above, but you're going to have to broaden that bigger coalition. It's not going to be about loyalty to right. what you just renamed as Grandfather Joe. It'll be another, another step <laughs> in that process loyalty. today. It's about, it's about Americans having their own future and seeing Joe Biden as the person who can help guide them toward that future versus the alternative, yeah. which yeah. is a chaotic. We'll, yeah. we'll see him today uh, in South Carolina as the content- campaign continues. Guys, thank you, as always. Appreciate it. The Supreme Court will decide <laughs> if Donald Trump is eligible to be on the primary ballot in Colorado. Our legal minds break down how this decision could all play out and if any of the justices may recuse themselves. Don't bet on it. Plus this. We have ignition. 
and liftoff of the first United Launch Alliance Vulcan rocket. Overnight, the first American moon landing mission since 1972 lifted off. You're watching it right there. What researchers plan to do with human remains on the moon's surface? Welcome back. Right now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his way to Saudi Arabia. He will meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. This is his fourth trip to the Middle East since the Hamas terror attack on October 7th. This time, over fears the war in Gaza could expand greatly throughout the region. Earlier, Blinken sat down for hostage talks with senior Qatari officials at a joint news conference. Blinken stressed that displaced Palestinians must be allowed to return home. Meantime, Qatar's prime minister said the recent killing of a senior Hamas leader in Beirut could affect these fragile hostage negotiations. Jennifer Hansler has reporting from the State Department for us and joins us now. Good morning. Let's start with what we're hearing from Secretary Blinken. Well, good morning, Poppy. We are hearing this very strong message from the secretary throughout his trips in the region throughout these several countries he's visited so far about the need to stop this conflict from spreading. We know from a senior State Department official that Blinken was going to be pushing the leaders of these countries who do have ties to Iran, to that do have ties to groups like Hezbollah and Hamas, to not spread this any further. We have seen a great uptick in the potential for this conflict to flame out of control in recent weeks. We saw that strike by the Israeli forces in Beirut to take out a senior Hamas leader. We have seen the Houthis in the Red Sea, who are backed by Iran, attacking ships, increasing their aggression there. And we have seen a steady stream of attacks by Iranian-backed groups in Iraq and Syria against U.S. interests. So there is a huge amount at stake here as the secretary is in the region. And of course, these talks are all coming ahead of his meetings in Tel Aviv. This is the fifth time the secretary is traveling to Israel. He is going to be again in the faces of these Israeli officials to press them to stem the war, help uh, stop the conflict from spreading, and also to protect civilians. And he's also pushing this message, as you said, to allow Palestinians to return to their homes who have been displaced by the massive toll of the war. Take a listen. Palestinian civilians must be able to return home as soon as conditions allow. They cannot, they must not be pressed to leave Gaza. We reject the statements by some Israeli ministers and lawmakers calling for a resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. These statements are irresponsible, they're inflammatory, and they only make it harder to secure a future of Palestinian-led Gaza, with Hamas no longer in control and with terrorist groups no longer able to threaten Israel's security. So a strong rebuke from some of these comments that we've seen from far-right Israeli officials. However, a U.N. official said that Gaza is now inhospitable, so a lot remains before these Palestinians are, in fact, able to return to their homes. Phil, Poppy? Jenny Hansler, thanks so much for the reporting from the State Department. Well, there's an intra-party funding fight brewing on Capitol Hill. Stop if you've heard this before. This comes after House Speaker Mike Johnson reached a spending deal with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on top-line spending levels. It marks a critical first step towards averting a government shutdown with just 11 days until the first of two deadlines. But Johnson's right flank in the House is calling the deal a, quote, total failure. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us now. Lauren, top-line deal is very important. Does this mean there won't be a shutdown? 
Well, it doesn't guarantee that there won't be a shutdown, Phil, but what it does do is it sets both Republicans and Democrats on the right track to try and avoid one. In some ways, the deal that was reached and announced yesterday looks a lot like the top-line negotiation that was part of that debt ceiling deal that passed during the summer. And in part, that is no coincidence because it is the deal that Republicans and Democrats really find as the middle ground. What this deal includes is $886 billion in defense spending about $704 billion in non-defense spending with an agreement to also reprogram about $69 billion in non-defense spending. That also was part of the debt ceiling deal. In some ways, Phil, this really puts Mike Johnson in the exact same position that former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy found himself in after that debt ceiling deal passed in June with the House conservatives really revolting against McCarthy. The question now becomes, how do conservatives react? already. They're saying this deal is worse than they thought. But many of those members are the same ones who would never vote for a spending deal to begin with. So right now, the first spending deadline is coming up on January 19th. There's a second deadline for the rest of government funding on February 2nd. It looks promising that they have taken this step, but now they have to write the bill, agree where all this money is going. And that is, again, another hurdle that Republicans and Democrats are going to have to iron out in the days ahead. Phil, Poppy. Clearly not at the finish line yet, Lauren Fox. Thank you. Well, I had more on those new developments overnight. What we're learning about the moment a chunk of a passenger plane ripped off mid-flight, the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board will join us in a moment. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Well, it's finally here. The college football national championship game will kick off just hours from now in Houston, which is where we find Coy Wire, who is going to explain to everybody why you Did should you absolutely not read that not line root, on purpose. Why it's, you have to root for Washington he tonight. That's what Coy, read why you sh- why American has to root for Washington, right? That's what you're gonna talk about? <laughs> We are going going to start with talking about Phil's favorite to win this game, clearly Michigan. He will be dry heaving while this game goes on as he sees Michigan play for their first title since 1997. And they made it here despite their head coach Jim Harbaugh missing six games this season. Three due to a recruiting violation suspension, three more um, due to a a sign-stealing scandal, which led to an assistant coach being fired. Still, those Wolverines are undefeated, 14-0, and they figured out a way to overcome distraction and adversity. Listen to some of the players. All the adversity we've been through this year, you know, with Coach Harbaugh um, and all the allegations and stuff like that, I feel like it's brought us closer together and made us a better team. It brought us closer. It made us, you know, more of a team, more more compact together, more trusting of a brotherhood. So uh, I, I think it was, you know, I hate that we went through it, but it was great that we went through it, being able to, you know, allow us to be here in this moment. Just, you know, nothing, nothing can affect us. It's always us against everybody. 
It will be Michigan against that undefeated Washington team. 21-game win streak, longest in the nation. Heisman finalist Michael Penix throwing to arguably uh, the greatest uh, receiving trio in the nation. It is uh, Michigan favored by four and a half, even five and a half points by some. The fans are pouring in from all over. It was a sea of blue, Phil Mattingly, and some wild fan named Dr. Sanjay Gupta on the plane behind me was raving about how he's going to be tailgating all day long here in the parking lot before today's game. Well, Sanjay is no longer <coughs> somebody I will speak to in public from here on. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I can't wait to watch. Coy, we can't wait for all your reporting throughout the course of the next day. Thanks, man. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. New images show the force of the failure on board Alaska Airlines Flight 1282. Some companies are temporarily suspending use of their Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets. The missing part of the aircraft has been found. We're going to go pick that up and make sure that we begin analyzing it. All eyes are now on Iowa. The final chance for the candidates to prove themselves in the first of the nation caucus state. I kind of like being underestimated. They're vying for second place and they're trying to ensure that the margin is defensible enough going into New Hampshire. This is not like 2016. He's not putting in that kind of time. It's because he doesn't need to. They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. The danger of Donald Trump is that he does not believe in rules and laws and norms and institutions. A key member of Trump's inner circle, Dan Scavino, has revealed new details about Trump's inaction on January 6th. He was the Trump whisperer. And if he's cooperating with the feds, Donald Trump's in real trouble. Well, good Monday morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York, and we have a lot of big developments this morning's investigators try and figure out why a gaping hole blew open on an Alaska Airlines plane mid-flight after taking off from Portland. The NTSB says a crucial piece of the Boeing 737 MAX jet, the door plug, has been found in somebody's backyard. Now take a look at these new images from investigators. What you're seeing there is seat cushions and headrests ripped off by the explosion explosive force of the depressurization in the cabin. The warning light previously went off on the same plane multiple times, including the day before the horrifying flight. Alaska Airlines has restricted them from flying that plane on big flights, like long ones, to Hawaii, for example, over the ocean, in case they had to quickly land. Listen to this passenger describe the moment the door plug blew out. You heard a big loud bang to the left rear rear like in row 20 and a whooshing sound and all the oxygen masks deployed. You could see later that there was a two window section panel that blew out. It's about as wide as a refrigerator. And there was, I guess, a boy and his mother were sitting in that row and his shirt was sucked off him and out of the plane and his mother was holding on to him. Joining us now is the woman in charge of this investigation, Jennifer Hamadi. She is the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board and was able to inspect the plane, actually walk through it. So she has a lot of information. Thank you very much for being with us. Let's begin with what you saw that we don't know more about uh, when you walked through that plane. What do people have to know this morning? Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Poppy. Um, and it was a described to us by the flight crew that it was a very violent, explosive event. 
uh, when it occurred. And you can see that from inside the aircraft. Now, we were able to inspect the airframe itself from the exterior and found absolutely no structural damage uh, to the airplane. So that's a great thing. Um, inside, there was a lot of damage to non-critical uh, components, everything from paneling to trim to insulation coming out of the paneling, uh, some separation of the plastic inside of the windows, although the seal uh, and the uh, uh, glass windows themselves were still intact. And then, of course, you have the torquing of some of the seats in those rows. So it's... It, it must have been truly terrifying. I mean, it's, a, it's the size of a refrigerator, the hole in the plane, while you're in the air going 400 miles an hour. It's technically called a door plug, but that's the door. I mean, the door blew off for all uh, intents and purposes. And I, I wonder to you, now that they've found it, what will that tell you about if this could happen on other planes? Yeah, and just to clarify, this is not an operational door inside right. the aircraft. Uh, passengers would only see the paneling. Outside, you would see uh, what looks like a door. It's a plug in the uh, aircraft itself. But uh, uh, through, uh, through, from the time we got here, we began uh, documenting the scene and looking at uh, how the airframe uh, uh, is situated right now, uh, looking at everything from witness marks and paint transfer on different components uh, to try to begin analyzing what occurred. Our focus right now is on this aircraft uh, to determine what happened, how it happened, and to prevent it from happening again. And once we determine that, mm -hmm. we can see if there's a greater concern uh, that we want to, to issue an urgent safety recommendation for. So talking about some potential warnings that this could happen, December 7th and then again on January 3rd and January 4th, the depressurization warning light on this plane came on and then it was inspected and then it was reset and then this plane was back in the air, but with conditions, right, that it couldn't do long haul flights over the ocean like to Hawaii in case it had to land. After those three warnings, should this plane have ever been in the air? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because that is what we are looking at with Alaska right now and with Boeing right now. That alert that illuminated those three times certainly is very disconcerting to our investigators and we want to look at that, but it may have absolutely nothing to do uh, with what occurred in the cabin of the aircraft on that uh, during that event. Uh, it, what, it did illuminate uh, the uh, uh, flight crew had switched to a different mode uh, because there is a backup system. Uh, and uh, the uh, once they landed, it was tested, uh, inspected, reset, and put back in service. But as you said, Alaska Air took uh, some precautions to put some restrictions on where that could fly. Uh, and that's something we're, uh, our systems crew is looking into. But if there's a precaution on where a plane can fly, should that plane be flying anywhere? And that's what we're looking at. Uh, Alaska Air tells us the reason uh, that was put in place uh, 
is so that they could uh, get to an airport if the light illuminated and could get repairs again. Uh, but it is something that is a concern for us, so we're going to look. But again, I would just caution, it may have absolutely nothing to Fair. do uh, with what occurred on that date. No. Fair, and I'm glad you point that out again. I was flying home last night with our two little kids right behind, you know, the same area as this plane, a different plane, but still, it's all I could think about. So my question this morning is, mm. is it safe for anyone to fly on these Boeing MAX jets right now? It's our aviation uh, system is the safest in the world. We are the gold standard for safety in our airspace, uh, but we need to maintain that. And when an event occurs like this, it is up to us to take a, a close look at what happened to make sure we maintain safety in the air. Uh, for this one, I will mention we're, we're um, disappointed that the cockpit voice recorder was overwritten. We can learn a lot from that cockpit voice recorder. Uh, we have urged the FAA to extend the cockpit voice recorder time from two hours to 25 hours because we want to hear communications, noise, alerts on the flight deck, which may help us uh, prevent uh, 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 future tragedies. Just so people understand, that is what sort of automatically happens on some of these planes that aren't, aren't the newest, is that every two hours it sort of resets and you want that to be extended much longer so that you can always hear in a situation like this. Just finally, with Boeing, there have been a number of issues, including two fatal crashes with the Boeing MAX line. Uh, both of those crashes were caused in part because of the MCAS system, which they've changed. But is there a bigger issue going on here at Boeing regarding safety? Yeah, we'll have to see that through the course of our investigation. Uh, in the past, when we've investigated, say, a uh, 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 malfunction on a plane uh, just about a year ago, we found that we needed to go broader and look at repairs for all of the fleet. Uh, we'll, we may look at the manufacturer, the design uh, of this aircraft, but we go where the evidence takes us. We really appreciate all of this information this morning, Jennifer. Thanks to you and your team and come back as you have more information. Thank you, Poppy. Well, we're just one week from the Iowa caucuses. What the candidates are doing to make their final pitch to voters. Three years since the January 6th Capitol attack, new reporting shedding a lot of light on Donald Trump's mindset that day. What several former top Trump aides told federal investigators. So we're going to... Well, the countdown is on. If you don't believe me, there's literally a wall behind me that's showing it to you. It's just a week until the Iowa caucuses today. Vivek Ramaswamy crisscrossing the state with events. His GOP rival, Nikki Haley, she will be in Des Moines. And as caucus day gets close, the candidates hammering home the importance of voter turnout, as obviously that will make or break the momentum in the race. CNN's Eva McKen is joining us live from okay, Des Moines, Iowa. Eva, when it comes to how this all works right now, what are candidates looking for? Go. Phil, voters here that we speak to, they're still making up their minds. They take the fact that Iowa goes first very seriously. They're still vetting these candidates. They know that if a candidate breaks through and does well here, they'll have significant momentum to move on 
to the other states. All eyes are now on Iowa. Haley DeSantis, Ramaswamy, and Trump all converged on Iowa over the weekend. Now's the time to be active. Now's the time where you guys can make a difference. With just one week remaining before the Iowa caucus, the GOP candidates are pouring millions of dollars into the first voting state, flooding the airwaves in an attempt to challenge former President Trump's considerable lead in the polls. You know, backstage they say to me sometimes, sir, don't tell them that they're going to vote for you. That sounds so demeaning. I said, I got them $28 billion for their farmers. Of course they're going to vote. DeSantis and Haley could not avoid speaking about the front runner. I think if we're relitigating the, the past elections, if it's about, you know, Donald Trump or his legal issues or criminal trials or all that stuff, you know, I think it's going to be a really nasty election. I don't think that puts Republicans in a good position to win. He was really good at breaking things. He just wasn't good at fixing them. Trump is looking for a decisive victory in the Hawkeye state after losing the Iowa caucus back in 2016. However, Iowans are split on who they'll support. I think it's highly likely that Trump will come out first. I'll be voting for DeSantis. I would like to see uh, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, be in the race as long as he can be. Trump held a rally in Iowa on the third anniversary of the January 6th Capitol attack during which he gave his support for those jailed for their actions that day. They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. And raised eyebrows when he made this comment about the Civil War. They could have been negotiated and they wouldn't have had that problem, but it was a, tell it was a hell of a time. This week, the former president will be toggling back and forth from the campaign trail to the courtroom, with a jam-packed schedule. On Tuesday, he will be in a D.C. courtroom where opening arguments will be held on his immunity claim. On Wednesday, he will be back in Iowa for a town hall event. And on Thursday, he will be in a New York City courtroom where the closing arguments in the civil fraud case against him, his sons, and the Trump organization will begin. And Phil and Poppy, a little bit of a wrinkle. It is expected to snow in the coming hours, and that's already leading to the cancellation of some events. And it comes at a time when candidates can ill afford it. They are trying to use this final week to shake every hand, meet every voter. Phil, Poppy. Eva McCann, live for us in Des Moines. Thank you. Donald Trump trying to rewrite the history of January 6th, but there is new reporting from ABC News, and it really details the extent of Trump's failure to respond or try to calm the violence at the Capitol for hours, even when his own vice president was in harm's way. And this is not coming from Trump critics. This is according to people under oath in his inner circle. Do you remember those chants, hang Mike Pence? Well, according to sources familiar with Jack Smith's investigation, quote, former Trump aide, Nick Luna told federal investigators that when Trump was informed that his vice president had to be rushed to a secure location, Trump responded saying, quote, so what? The sources also say that Luna told investigators that Trump showed he was, quote, capable of allowing harm to come to one of his closest allies at the time. His aides and lawyers reportedly spent 20 minutes trying to persuade Trump to release a statement calming the crowd. It was no use. 
So they chose to leave him alone. And that's when Trump himself tweeted that Pence, quote, didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. Now, sources say former Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino and others rushed back into the dining room, quote, to explain to Trump that a public attack on Pence was not what we needed. And Trump responded, but it's true. When Scavino talked to Trump that night, he told Trump, quote, this is all your legacy here. There's smoke coming out of the Capitol. But he said that legacy could remain intact if Trump took the right steps moving forward. A spokesperson for the Trump campaign now calls this report, quote, secondhand hearsay. With us now, former Trump White House press secretary and communications director Stephanie Grisham. She was also chief of staff to Melania Trump and the author of the book, I'll Take Your Questions. Now, what I saw at the Trump White House, direct quotes from people under oath. Does it track with what you experienced? Good morning, guys. It absolutely tracks with everything that I experienced and heard and have been talking about, you know, ever since January 6th. Dan Scavino, especially, he was at Trump's side 24-7. If they weren't together, Trump was calling him constantly. Dan was also really good at giving him some good advice, and he would oftentimes be one of the only people that uh, Trump would listen to. So, you know, I'm very hopeful that that. Dan has been t telling the truth and, and testifying, but I'm also a little skeptical because they were very, very close for a very long time. Stephanie, the, the comment that uh, is relayed by Nick Luna about Trump responding, so what, yeah. uh, when he was told that Pence had to be rushed to a secure location, uh, sources said that Luna saw it as evidence that Trump was, quote, capable of allowing harm to come to one of his closest allies. Do you think that he was, that he was capable of that? Well, absolutely. He had no regard for anybody but himself that day and the people who would do his bidding, meaning the people at the Capitol, you know, hoping that they would stop the election from happening. And, you know, again, Nick Luna, that's another great example of somebody who was by the president's side for all the time. He started out as his body man and then he moved into the outer oval office. And Nick's a good guy. I believe that what he said was true. And I believe that, you know, he definitely would be somebody who would cooperate. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear it. Obviously, huge concern over what happened three years ago. But looking at how the American people feel now about what may happen after the next election, is troubling. CBS did some really interesting polling in the last couple of days. And what they found is 49%, Stephanie, so about half the country is expecting violence from the side that loses in future elections. Look at those numbers. That is very concerning. And I wonder if it surprises you. It, sadly, it doesn't. I mean, you know, we live in a split screen world right now. People watch either, you know, the Fox News of the world or, or they're watching maybe the MSNBCs of the world. And I think that's a problem. I think that every the vitriol is just it's something terrible. And I think that we should be talking about January 6th. I resigned that day. It was a horrible day for our country. But I also think that we should be looking forward at what a potential Trump presidency would look like. I think that's really important for people to understand. You know, we keep talking about democracy. Democracy is, is you know, it's our way of life's going to be taken away. I don't think people understand by by and large what that means and how it could affect them. I think that's something that should be talked about more. So how would you explain it to them? You were there. You were there until that day. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was there for six years. I started with him early on in 2015, and I was a true believer. I thought this man would come in and up in the, the politics of our country and the bureaucracy. And, you know, he sure did those things, but not in the way that I had envisioned. And I think it's important for people 
who were like me or who are like me now, you know, who, who really believe in him to understand how another Trump presidency will be. So what is democracy? That's the people having the freedom to act and speak freely. I think under Trump, you're not going to be able to do that or you are going to be able to do that as long as you're talking just about him in positive ways. I think free press will be really something that's going to go go by the wayside. I remember when I was press secretary, he wanted me to kick everybody off the White House grounds constantly. I think that's something that's going to you know, happen. I think that we're going to be aligned with countries like China and Russia rather than our NATO allies. So I think it's important that people are understanding really how he's going to operate. All right, Stephanie Grisham, thank you. The book is I'll Take Your Questions Now, What I Saw at the Trump White House. Exactly one month from today, the Supreme Court will review a potentially monumental question. Will Donald Trump be on the ballot in Colorado this fall? And DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas heading to the southern border today as the House Republicans prepare to move forward with his impeachment. More on that ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I just hope we get fair treatment uh, because if we don't, our country's in big, big trouble. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Well, can former President Trump be barred from holding office? This is a question that the Supreme Court is going to have to address one month from today. The high court will review this unprecedented decision by the state of Colorado, their Supreme Court. that removes Trump from the state's ballot, citing the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The court argued that Trump's actions on January 6th and in the days that followed, quote, constituted overt, voluntary and direct participation in an insurrection. Let's turn to our senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, with much more on this. So Supreme Court has to address this. Yes, they do, Poppy. So our Latin legal word of the day is certiorari, which translates to they're taking the case. Important to know, it takes four of the nine justices to vote to take a case. Now, we don't know which four or how many or whether there was more than four. We never know that. By the way, people are asking, will Justice Thomas recuse himself because his wife, Ginny, had some involvement in some of the events leading up to January 6th? The answer is no. It's up to him. He hasn't done so before. There's no reason to think he will do so today. Now, if we look at the order the Supreme Court gave us on Friday night saying they're taking the case, it's all about the scheduling. So let's take a look at the calendar so we understand how this is going to play out over the next several weeks. January 18th, 10 days from today, Donald Trump's brief is due. He goes first because he lost below. Then January 31st, Colorado's brief is due. Then Trump gets a chance for one last say in what we call a reply brief on the 5th. And then the big day to circle, February 8th, one, week, one month from today. That's when we'll have oral argument in front yeah. of the Supreme Court. By the way, that will be audio live stream. The court does say, that. People should know, although we think you should be able to watch it with cameras. Yes. It's a separate debate. You can listen to it. You can listen to it. You can to listen it. to all of this in real time or go back after. Talk about the arguments exactly. that you believe are going to be central to this on both sides. Yeah, so a couple things to know about the arguments. By the way, the Supreme Court did not tell us what specific issues they'll be considering. Sometimes they do that. They did not do that here. If we look at Trump's brief, first of all, this argument that he did not commit insurrection, he claims that, mark my words, the Supreme Court is not going to rule yes or no, insurrection or no. It's not what they do. They're reviewing the constitutional and procedural elements of this. Do not count on some grand pronouncement from the court about that. We also, I think, are going to see Trump argue, he's argued before, that it's up to Congress how the 14th Amendment works, not each individual state. And so the argument will be, if you look at the 14th Amendment, it actually says Congress shall pass law to enforce this. Now, the question is, does that mean Congress only or Congress, but also the states, as we saw 
in Colorado. And I think the third argument that we're going to see, given Trump's prior briefing, is that the president does not count as a, quote, officer. The 14th Amendment actually does not say president. It says senator, representative, but it also says officers of the United States. Logically, you think, of course, that has to be president, but there's ways you can lawyer this well, to the point where it does not include the president. It says president the line above that, but also, the I mean, this court, many of the justices read things very textually. They may, right. it may benefit Trump here. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Before you go, what about the calendar big picture in terms of what other states? Yeah. Looking at the map, this is about Colorado, yeah. but what the Supreme Court decides here could affect many other states? It, it almost certainly will, and I think it's, this is part of the reason the Supreme Court took the case. If we look, there are about eight states right now where yeah. these 14th Amendment challenges have been rejected. Some of them are final, some of them are still pending further appeal, but eight states that have said, no, we're not disqualifying them. You have another 15 or so where we have pending appeals, pending efforts to get Trump off the ballot that have not been ruled on one way or the other. And then you just have that minority of two Colorado and Maine, who have, for the moment, thrown him off the ballot. And by the way, important point, both of these states vote on Super Tuesday, March 5th. So if you're wondering how long until the Supreme Court rules, remember, they're hearing argument February 8th. I think it's certain less they will rule. Less than a month. Yes, less than a month from now. And I think they will certainly rule before March 5th because voters in Colorado and Maine and elsewhere have to know, I think, fairly, is he going to be eligible or not? So I think we're going to get a really quick decision from the court. Ellie Honig, extremely helpful. Thank, Thank you. you. Phil. Well, this morning, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin still being treated at Walter Reed Medical Center. Why the president and the deputy defense secretary were kept in the dark about his hospitalization. A remarkable few days. New details ahead. Later today, Homeland Security Alejandro... Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is heading to the southern border as a recent surge of migrants is overwhelming already stretched resources. His visit comes as House Republicans are plotting to swiftly impeach him early this year. It would be an exceedingly rare move. Over the past two centuries, only one cabinet secretary has ever been impeached. And it marks a shift for the House Republicans who had been targeting President Biden for a potential impeachment. That investigation is still underway. Senior Republicans now believe going after Mayorkas may be the easier lift. The border crisis has become a defining campaign issue at the same time. But given Republicans' razor-thin majority in the House, will key swing district members get on board? We're going to talk to one right now. Congressman Michael Lawler of New York, uh, he's traveled to the border just last week with Speaker Mike Johnson and more than 60 House Republicans. They visited Eagle Pass, Texas, where Secretary Mayorkas is going today. Congressman, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for being here. I want to talk broader border and policy issues in a moment. But the idea of impeaching Secretary Mayorkas... When you look at the, the threshold for impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanors, is it your sense that he's reached that? And, and can you point to them? Look, he has an obligation to uphold the Constitution of the United States and enforce our laws. Uh, he has failed miserably uh, in his obligation to both. Uh, our border is as porous as it has ever been. Since Joe Biden took office, nearly 10 million migrants have crossed our southern border, many of them illegally. Secretary Mayorkas has testified before Congress on numerous occasions uh, and lied to Congress uh, about uh, his actions and the actions of uh, the Homeland Security Administration when it comes to securing our border. Uh, Chairman Green is uh, working through the process, and I'm not going to get ahead of him as to what the charges will be. Uh, but I can tell you this. Uh, when I visited the border last week with Speaker Johnson, uh, it is far worse uh, than even I thought. Uh, this is a catastrophe. Uh, you have uh, in Eagle Pass a facility 
that can handle 1,000 migrants at a clip. Uh, they were processing 6,000 just a few days before we arrived. Uh, these uh, migrants, 90% of them, are released into the United States within 36 hours. Right. Uh, and, you know, when they are doing the background checks, uh, if they can't verify uh, somebody's name, uh, they just assume that that is the person. And that is deeply disturbing when you're talking about national security threats uh, and the obligation of the Secretary of Homeland Security to protect the homeland. He has failed in that obligation. To that point, I think the question is, as he's also serving as one of the administration's point people on the ongoing bipartisan Senate negotiations uh, to address a very urgent issue both parties seem to agree on at this point in time. How does moving forward with impeachment help actual policy process and what has always been a very complex issue? Well, look, this has been a crisis that has been ongoing for three years, in large part because of the policy decisions of the Biden administration. House Republicans passed H.R. 2 back in May of this year. Uh, Senate Democrats did nothing about it for months until House Republicans and the Speaker said, we're not moving forward on Ukraine funding unless you act on the border. And so now the Senate is negotiating Uh, But they have to recognize the negotiation will ultimately be between the House and the Senate. Uh, So, yes, the Senate is negotiating right now. We'll see what they come forward with. House Republicans had put our plan forward. Uh, But ultimately, there's going to have to be a serious good faith negotiation. This can't be mealy mouthed. Uh, It has to be uh, serious reforms to secure our border. To that point, uh, Speaker Johnson, in in an interview with our colleague Jake Tapper last week, seemed to lay out that. H.R. 2, your bill that you guys passed, you're very accurate on that, is the, is the red line. That's the line in the sand. That doesn't get 60 votes in the U.S. Senate. If you want a real negotiation, an intensive negotiation, H.R. 2 can't be the be-all, end-all from the Republican position. As we saw with the Fiscal Responsibility Act, you have to pass something to be able to negotiate, right? So we passed Limit, Save, Grow. Speaker McCarthy was able to go negotiate with the president on the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Senate Democrats haven't passed anything yet. Right. So let's see what they actually so you're can saying pass. the speaker's just putting let's out a negotiation position. And, that's and then his... we're going to have to negotiate. We, look, we're in a divided government. Right. Right. So we're not all going to get everything we want. But it ha- we have to be serious about reforming the asylum process. Remain in Mexico has to be the policy. So there's, uh, you know, parts of H.R. 2 that absolutely have to be part of any final deal. You mentioned that there was a top line spending agreement that looks a lot like the top line spending agreement that the former Speaker of the House uh, negotiated. You feel like that's going to get the job done in terms of preventing a shutdown? Look, I supported uh, the agreement that Speaker McCarthy had negotiated uh, with President Biden back in June. Uh, I believe, uh, obviously, as we've seen, the deal between uh, Speaker Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer Uh, is in keeping with much of the framework of that Fiscal Responsibility Act. I do believe it will help us avert a shutdown. I've always said we must cut spending, we cannot default on our previous debts, and we cannot shut down. That has been my parameters uh, from the start, and and I will continue to support that. I want to ask you, because you have taken a different tact than some of your Republican colleagues have on January 6th. You, you tweeted uh, over the weekend, it was something you said at the time, it was a stain on our nation, it undermined the peaceful transfer of power, um, and it should never happen again. Uh, the former president, who is now the Republican frontrunner, and your conference chair are now referring to those that were arrested uh, and charged with January 6th as hostages. Take a listen. They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. They ought to release them. 
I call them hostages. Some people call them prisoners. I call them hostages. I have concerns about the treatment of January 6 hostages. Uh, I have concerns. We have a role in Congress of oversight over our treatments of prisoners. I'm just I'm, I'm trying to square kind of your position on this, how you view things. And the hostages is a very loaded term and they know what they're doing. And, you know, they know what they're doing. So how is when you look at your Republican conference chair, fellow member of the New York delegation, do you think about the Republican Party right now? Look, I'll I'll let my colleague uh, speak for herself, but uh, I have said repeatedly, January 6th was wrong. It never should have happened. Uh, Those that stormed the Capitol uh, and committed acts of violence, uh, breaking into offices, including the Speaker's office, should be held accountable. Uh, In the same way that I believe anybody who stormed a Portland federal courthouse or burned down a police station in Minneapolis should be held accountable. When you commit acts of political violence, uh, there are consequences for that. Uh, And so people should be uh, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law when they break the law. Uh, And that has always been my position, regardless of party. uh, And I will maintain that. Congressman Mike Lawler, appreciate your time, sir. Thank Thank you. Well, today, President Biden will travel to South Carolina. He will speak at the historic Mother Emanuel AME Church. One of his key supporters in the state is voicing some concern over whether his message on threats to democracy is breaking through. And this morning, the U.S. launching its first lunar lander in decades. And what it's carrying to the moon, sparking a lot of backlash, prompting a last-minute meeting at the White House. We'll tell you why. Launching a new... Welcome back. President Biden traveling to Charleston, South Carolina today to deliver remarks at Mother Emanuel AME Church. This is the historic black church where in 2015, a white gunman opened fire, killing nine people. The self-described white supremacist said he did it to, quote, agitate race relations. The president is expected to lay out some of the central arguments of his reelection bid, including protecting democracy. And this comes after he kicked off his 2024 campaign officially Friday with an impassioned speech calling Donald Trump a dire threat. Biden is preparing for a potential rematch with his predecessor, who this week will split time between courtrooms and the campaign trail. Now, Biden's trip to South Carolina comes ahead of the state's Democratic primary on February 3rd. That contest will serve as an early test of his appeal this time around to black voters. And you'll remember very well Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. His endorsement was instrumental in Biden's victory in 2020. But he is now raising concerns about the president's re-election campaign. Listen to what he told our Jake Tapper just yesterday. I'm very concerned, and I have sat down with President Biden. My problem is that we have not been able to break through uh, that MAGA wall in order to get to people exactly what this president has done. Joining us now is Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger of Virginia. She is running for governor in the state as well. Thank you for being with us. I wonder if you share that concern that has been echoed by, now we know from Washington Post reporting, former President Obama, who directly expressed some of that concern to President Biden. Mitt Romney, uh, who is no fan of Trump, is saying, I think the threat to democracy pitch is a bust. Do you agree with them? 
I think that they are all important and related. I think that what uh, Congressman Clyburn was talking about, I agree with him completely, that the accomplishments of this president, of his presidency, are things that at times are unknown uh, to voters. The most comprehensive investment in our infrastructure, in our efforts to be competitive against China, in bringing manufacturing of chips and semiconductors home, in ensuring that our veterans have the care that they have earned through their service, because of the exposures they suffered in service to our country, you know, as just a, a small sampling of so much of the work that we have done, we have passed through Congress and sent to the president's desk. Uh, but I don't think it's mutually exclusive, focusing on the economy, focusing on the threats to our rights as women, focusing on what matters most to an individual voter as they sit at their kitchen table is not mutually exclusive from recognizing that Donald Trump is a threat to our democracy. Here is a man who did the unthinkable. He did not concede an election. He did not willingly submit to the peaceful transition of power. And in fact, he's made jokes about being a dictator, at least just for one day. So the threats to our democratic republic are real. And if those threats are ever realized under a future Trump presidency, every other discussion about our economy, about our freedoms becomes secondary. At this point in time, we should be talking about everything and anything that is on a voter's mind. Certainly that's what I have done on the campaign trail and that's what I want to ensure that the Biden campaign is doing as well. So it sounds like you share some of the concern that, that uh, we heard there from Congressman Clyburn. What about three years now from January 6th? You were in the Capitol that day. You are a former CIA officer and you tweeted this weekend extensively about it, saying, look, I expected maybe to be under attack one day in that prior position, but never in the People's House, never in the Capitol. There is polling that now shows that more Republican voters approve of what happened on January 6th now than did in 2021, and fewer strongly disapprove of that. How do you explain that? Yes. It's a very dangerous rewriting of history. It is a very dangerous rewriting of history, uh, frankly, in part because some of those who have the strongest voice with these voters, Republican elected members of Congress, have walked away from the truth that they know, right? In the immediacy, after the attack on the Capitol, the result of which uh, more than 140 police officers were injured, five died in the aftermath, um, we saw person after person after person blaming the former president, recognizing his culpability. And as time went on, they stopped conveying that message. And they themselves have done some of the whitewashing of this actual historical event that is extraordinarily well documented, including their original comments. And so they are not showing leadership. And sadly, but not surprisingly, people who listen to them are also shifting uh, with that change in, in, in history, with that revision mm -hmm. uh, to a very true factual event. A couple other questions for you. First about Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who is facing a lot of criticism this morning for keeping uh, White House officials, his own deputy, the president in the dark for days about this hospital stay. He remains in the hospital. You sit on the Intelligence Committee. We are in the midst of, uh, obviously, the war in Ukraine continues, but also what may be an expanding conflict in the Middle East. Do you think it is appropriate how this was handled? No, 
I think it's appropriate and the right step forward that he has taken ownership uh, and asserted that this was a mistake. Uh, I think that once he's fully returned to the job, a conversation as to why this decision was made is one that in an after action report and understanding is an important conversation to have. But I, I do hope that every person uh, in the cabinet recognizes that this was not an appropriate step, not an appropriate way to handle what uh, was his hospitalization. And, and hopefully there will be greater transparency, at least within the administration. The uh, defense minister in Israel uh, spoke to the Wall Street Journal, and he talked about the next phase of their war against Hamas. And they talked about different special operations, but he warned it's going to last longer. The reason I bring this up to you is because you joined other Democrats in mid-December writing a letter to President Biden urging this administration to use every lever it has to make sure that Israel changes its strategy and protects more civilian lives. What do you believe needs to happen, given that this is changing and it's going to last longer, in his words? Well, I think there's important parts of this discussion. Israel was horribly attacked by terrorists in October. The murder of civilians in their home, the sexual assaults, the abuse of civilians in the process of this terrorist attack is unthinkably horrible, right? And, and must be called exactly what it was, a horrific terrorist attack. And Israel as a country has the right to go after those who perpetrated the attack in order to keep their citizens safe into the future. That is indisputable for me. There are also Palestinian civilians on the ground in Gaza, and we have seen enormous suffering, uh, not just because of uh, shellings of buildings, but because it's been so difficult to get humanitarian aid into the area. And so in a long-term perspective, and I joined with other colleagues who have an intelligence or a military background, and I worked counterterrorism cases pretty much for the entirety of my time with the agency. Terrorism is about, yes, going after terrorists is about, yes, going after the fighters. It's mm -hmm. also about going after the ideology. Right. And we have seen Israel taking an aggressive stance to go after those who perpetrated the attack. But we have to see more from them strategically about how they are going after the ideology. And part of going after the ideology is ensuring that civilians and people who are vulnerable, vulnerable and victims of a terrorist organization living amidst them, uh, that those individuals are not uh, uh, suffering unduly, that they have access to food and water and basic humanitarian necessities. Congress. And that is the crux of the conversation about how those two pieces of the strategy can be pursued. We appreciate your time. Thank you for being with us this morning, Congresswoman Bamberger. Thank you. Thank you. We'll have ahead more on the new developments overnight. What we're learning about the moment a chunk of a passenger plane ripped off mid-flight and Nothing says love quite like a big rose-hued stainless steel insulated tumbler. I say that to myself constantly. It's a collaboration between Stanley and Starbucks. It dropped in December at Target with the message, it was love at first sip. Target says they won't be restocked, but fans can expect more collaborations with Stanley throughout the year. Our national nightmare is over. We'll be back in a minute. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Monday morning, everyone. So glad you're with us. It is 8 a.m. here on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out west. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. There is a lot to get to. We begin with the Republican presidential candidates delivering their final pitches with only one week to go before the Iowa caucuses. But the frontrunner, Donald Trump, will be juggling his campaign with a hectic schedule in courtrooms. That's multiple courtrooms this week. Trump has also been busy ramping up his lies about January 6th. He is calling for the jailed rioters to be released and referring to them as hostages. He's also pivoting his attacks on the trail to Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley and Ron aren't working for your interests. They're working for uh, the interests of other nations and themselves. And so are those two. Nikki would sell you out just like she sold me out. So while Trump's campaign events are clashing with his courtroom appearances, the rest of the candidates are going to be out meeting with voters today, and we are going to be bringing you full coverage with CNN's Arlette Signs live in Delaware, traveling with President Biden. And our David Chalian is standing by to break down the state of the race, but let's lead things off with Kristen Holmes with more on Trump this morning. Kristen, how does the Trump team plan to juggle the courtroom appearances and campaign events that are running headlong into each other this week? Good morning, Phil and Poppy. Well, the one thing to point out here is that this is all by choice. Donald Trump is going to be ping-ponging between Iowa and various courtrooms this week, or at least is expected to, but he doesn't actually have to make these appearances. He is choosing to do so. So what we know from the schedule so far, and I'm just going to do this week because if we take it any further, it's going to be very confusing. If you look at this week, tonight he's supposed to come into D.C. so that tomorrow he can be present when his legal legal team presents their arguments about presidential immunity in front of the D.C. appeals court, then off to Iowa the next day for a town hall with Fox News, back to New York, where he is expected to sit in on the closing arguments of his civil fraud case there, and then for the weekend, back in Iowa, campaign events back to back until those caucuses on Monday. Now, part of the decision to do this is Donald Trump's, and part of it is about the fact that he does care about these two particular cases. We know that he has been more invested in the New York civil fraud case than almost any other case, and he is fixated on this idea of presidential immunity. But there is a secondary part of this. Donald Trump watches media coverage. He follows media coverage very closely. He knows, and his team knows, that the fastest way to take all the oxygen out of the room and away from other candidates is to go to these court appearances, to stack his schedule like this. That takes the attention away from these other candidates who are trying to gain traction ahead of those caucuses. This is something that we have seen in a strategy. We know that he is going to be using these courtroom appearances as campaign stops. But this idea that he could be or couldn't be in the on the ground in Iowa this week because he has to be in court, that's just simply not true. He could be on the campaign trail if he wanted to be. Great point. Kristen, thanks for the reporting as always. President Biden heads to Charleston, South Carolina this morning with plans for an emotional appeal to black voters in the state that saved his 2020 campaign. He's set to speak at Mother Emanuel Amy Church today. That's the same place where white supremacists shot and killed nine black people in 2015. Biden is expected to highlight the importance of fighting hate and extremism. Meantime, some of Biden's staunchest allies are voicing some concerns about the way his campaign is being run. According to The Washington Post, former President Obama had a lunch within the last couple of months with Biden and privately suggested, quote, the campaign needs to move more aggressively. Arlette Sines joins us from Wilmington, Delaware. Good morning to you. First of all, I wonder if there's any response from the president or the White House on that now public lunch with former President Obama and also what we expect from the president today. 
No, not quite yet. But President Biden is expected to head down to South Carolina today, really to give this speech that's an extension of the arguments he laid out on Friday when he warns that democracy is under threat, political violence needs to be condemned in this country, and really issued his most forceful condemnation of former President Donald Trump uh, yet this campaign cycle. But the fact uh, that Biden is traveling down to Mother Emanuel AME Church to deliver this speech is important. Uh, The campaign says that the president plans to remind voters that the hate that occurred on that day at Mother Emanuel Church when nine black worshipers were gunned down, that that hate still exists in this country and that it's incumbent on political leaders to condemn and try to root out hate, violence and extremism in this country. But the fact uh, the campaign really believes that these arguments about democracy and pushing back on political violence are something that will resonate with voters heading into November. One uh, point that they're stressing today and highlighting is the fact that they raised more than $1 million in the 24 hours since that speech at Valley Forge. That's according to a campaign official trying to uh, highlight some of the momentum they have around these issues. But another reason why this trip down to South Carolina is important is because who Biden will be speaking to there. Uh, Black voters were a critical part of the president's coalition and they will need that turnout uh, to also be up in this 2024 election. If you take a look at polling, there's about a 62 2 percent approval rating among black voters. That is slightly higher than uh, the general uh, voting voting electric uh, electorate in their uh, approval ratings of President Biden. But then there are some signs of narrowing in his support. The exit polls from 2020 found that Biden won black voters by 87 percent. Then if you take a look at that Quinnipiac poll, uh, he is now with about 80 percent of support from black voters and 17 uh, percent support for President, uh, former President Trump. Now, one of the president's campaign co-chairs, uh, Jim Clyburn, said that he's expressed some concerns to the president directly, uh, saying that this, so far they have been unable to break through the MAGA wall. But this South Carolina primary will be a key test of whether Biden can try to turn out and test of his enthusiasm among black voters heading into the 2024 election. Yeah, a, a cornerstone of any Democratic coalition, but most certainly President Biden's Democratic coalition. Our last signs. Thank you. Let's bring in David Chalian, our political director, for more. Let's let's start on there. Clyburn's concerns, Obama's concerns. Uh, Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger, uh, who's now running for governor of Virginia, just echoed Clyburn's concerns. She's also um, a bit worried. What do you think this all portends? Well, I think um, the concerns are why we are seeing what we're seeing from President Biden on Friday and today. I mean, I think these two things go hand in hand. In talking to senior Biden campaign officials, guys, uh, they believe— Uh, They're targeted universes of voters. So uh, folks that dropped off after 2020, totally disengaged from the political process that may be natural pieces of their base, young voters, voters of color, uh, need an awakening to remind them that this is political season and that as the Biden team sees it, uh, this threat is very real, not just to democracy as a theory, but to what democracy protects, your freedom to vote, your freedom uh, for choice, all those things. That's the argument. The other universe of voters um, are the more traditional, uh, persuadable swing voters. Uh, And in both of these groups, the Biden team believes people are not uh, of the mind that Donald Trump is actually back on the political scene in a real way. They don't really
really believe he's going to be the nominee, despite all of us covering this day in, day out, knowing he is very much the likely Republican nominee. So part of what Friday was, not just setting the stakes and the message, but also sort of grabbing the country by the lapels and saying, it's 2024, it is happening now, and it's time to get engaged. Yeah. This year, it's happening. This year. Yeah. You know, David, it's such a good point. Um, I, I dispute the idea that we follow politics closer than other people. What especially are you even talking about? Especially when we're challenging. But if there was ever a weekend that demonstrated that Trump is back and Trump is what Democrats feared in 2016 and 2020 and why they won in 2018 and did better than expected in 2022, it was this weekend. It was his remarks on Saturday kind of playing the old to some degree, deeply offensive hits related to a POW uh, and John McCain saying he could negotiate the Civil War. Do you think that this moment breaks through and does the shaking of the lapels like Biden's team wants? I mean, obviously, I don't think this has any impact in terms of the Republican electorate as we head in a week out to the caucuses, Phil. But I do think uh, the Biden campaign at least welcomes Donald Trump back into the spotlight in this way and using uh, this kind of rhetoric, whether it's the continued lies about the uh, 2020 election and, and focused on uh, the past or whether it is saying things like, Abraham Lincoln could have negotiated his way out of civil war, which just raises a whole host of question of what that means, actually. Um, this is exactly the kind of stuff that kept independence at bay in 2020 after they were with him in 2016 and helped deliver Biden the White House. And as you noted, kept those folks at, at, away from the Republicans in 18 and 22 in the midterms as well. So it is exactly this kind of rhetoric that the Biden team believes uh, is their best shot at highlighting so that those folks in the middle uh, don't swing back to Donald Trump's direction the way they were in 2016. David, let's talk about Iowa. We are one week away from the Iowa caucuses. You spend a lot of time in Iowa. You were at the state fair. You go back quite often. Listen to what Ron DeSantis said uh, on CBS yesterday morning about his chances in Iowa. You have never lost a political race before in your career. You are a second in the CBS Iowa projections. Um, is that victory enough for you? Well, we got to win a majority of the delegates. This is a long process. We're doing really well in Iowa. You know, I kind of like being underestimated. We're going to do well in Iowa, but we're also going to be competing in all these other states. It's the part that struck me was I kind of like being underestimated. What does Ron DeSantis need to do in Iowa to show people who have seen a deflated campaign that they are wrong? Well, you could hear in his answer there, Poppy, right, that no matter what his result is in Iowa, he's going to define it as doing well in Iowa, right? And, and what... And, and what I think the political world at this point is going to be looking for a week from tonight is when voters actually get involved, and the first voters in this process are these Iowa Republican caucus goers, uh, do the results end up looking like all that public polling out there with Donald Trump with such a dominant lead, or do they look somewhat different? Because I think if indeed DeSantis's result overperforms where his polling is right now, mm -hmm. he's going to make an argument to be able to get some funding to, to move this campaign forward. If it looks worse than in the public polling right now, I think Ron DeSantis is going to be in a real world of hurt. Thank you, David. Talk to you soon. Sure. This Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, Jake Tapper, Dana Bash will moderate CNN's Republican presidential debate live, of course, from Iowa. 
There's new information on why part of an Alaska Airlines plane blew off mid-flight. Investigators recovering a critical clue overnight and revealing the other issues before the mid-air emergency. Also this morning, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is still in the hospital. We do have new insight into why the White House didn't know for days. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin remains in the hospital recovering from complications tied to an elective procedure. Now, we're told Austin is doing okay, but there are serious questions about his decision to keep his hospitalization secret for several days. Neither Austin's deputy nor the White House knew he was hospitalized until three days after he was admitted. That's according to two Defense Department officials. And according to the Pentagon, Austin had the elective procedure on December 22nd and went home the next day. Then, on January 1st, Austin was taken by ambulance to Walter Reed after experiencing, quote, severe pain. He was admitted to the ICU. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was notified on the 2nd, the next day. Austin's deputy, Kathleen Hicks, assumed some of his duties that day, but she wasn't informed that he was hospitalized until January 4th. January 4th is the same day President Biden found out. Congress learned a day later, as did the rest of the public. Pentagon says that Austin resumed his duties on Friday while he was in the hospital. The White House says President Biden spoke to Austin on Saturday and has complete confidence in him. Others, not as much. The handling of this by the Secretary of Defense is totally unacceptable. I think it was a dereliction of duty and, uh, uh, and, uh, and the Secretary and the administration, frankly, need to step forward uh, and give the American people the facts. Former Vice President Mike Pence with us now, CNN military analyst General Mark Hurtling. He is a friend of Secretary Austin's and a former classmate of his at West Point. You know, we just heard General um, Abigail Spamberger, who's on the Intel Committee, former CIA officer, Democrat, say it's not appropriate how this was handled. Do you agree? I, I do agree with that. Uh, I think Secretary Austin didn't make a mistake or his staff made a mistake in not notifying the correct people. Uh, but... I think we'll learn more about this when he is released and he's allegedly going to be released today. Uh, what happened on the 23rd and, uh, and he was on leave during that period. He took leave specifically to do a medical procedure and then came back and was readmitted due to, from my understanding, pain. Uh, I, I fault them for that. Any commander knows that they have to notify their boss when, when something serious is going on that might take them out of the loop. But it appears that the right procedures were put in place. He, he named his deputy, uh, Kathy Hicks, uh, to take over for him. And from what I understand, and I've talked to senior administration officials, he was always in communications with the people at the Defense Department and, and the White House. General, I think what I'm struck by, public disclosure, I'm a member of the media. I have my own issues with that, and we can talk about that at length uh, anytime you want. But, but I think it's the, the chain of command point that you're making, both up and down in the sense that the National Security Advisor not finding out that his Secretary of Defense at a moment of extreme tension throughout the world where U.S. forces uh, are coming under increasing attack uh, by uh, Iranian proxies on a daily basis at this point, um, that the National Security Advisor wouldn't be informed, that the president wouldn't be informed, how that's possible. 
Well, Phil, what, I, what I'd suggest is the communication was intact. I know from a senior leader's perspective, even as a three-star general, I had a commo team with me every moment of every day. There are no days off. Uh, you're working 24-7. Secretary Austin has a much more intense schedule than I ever had. He's been traveling a lot. That communication team sets up wherever he is. His staff knew where he was. As I understand it, he was constantly communicating with the right people, uh, but but he was in pain uh, and he was being treated for that. And and uh, what I think is he knows he made a mistake. He admitted that. But at the same time, Phil, one of the things that's important in the Department of Defense and in the U.S. medical system is the privacy is a balancing for telling the public what's going on with you. Now, it's one thing to tell your boss. And, and he admitted that he was mistaken in not doing that. But he also reminded people, hey, this is my procedure. It's my personal privacy that, that is at stake here. And, I'm, and I would bet that sometime this week when he's released, he's going he's gonna to bring the, uh, the Pentagon press corps together and explain what happened. But he, I would almost bet that he's not going to discuss uh, what, what the issue was, the physical issue that, that he was getting treatment for. General Mark Hartling, thank you. Obviously, we wish him the best. Hope he makes full recovery. Hope he does get out yeah. of the hospital very soon. Thank yeah, you. Thing here. Yeah, thanks. Of course. New this morning, a crucial missing piece of an Alaska Airlines plane has been found as investigators try to figure out why a gaping hole blew open on the side of the jet in midair. The NTSB says Boeing's 737 MAX door plug has been discovered in someone's backyard in Portland, Oregon. These are some new images this morning from investigators. What they show is headrests and seat cushions ripped off by the force of the depressurization. And we're now learning that the plane's cabin pressure warning light had gone off three times, including the day before the flight. Alaska Airlines had actually restricted this same specific plane from flying over the ocean to Hawaii in case it needed to land quickly. I asked the head of the NTSB about that when she joined us. But if there's a precaution on where a plane can fly, should that plane be flying anywhere? And that's what we're looking at. It is something that is a concern for us, so we're going to look. But again, I would just caution, it may have absolutely nothing to do uh, with what occurred on that date. The NTSB also says two cell phones that were likely flung from the plane were found in a yard on the side of the road. One of them was still working and had an Alaska Airlines baggage receipt email. Well, also this morning, the first lunar lander in the U.S. has launched in more than five decades is on its way to the moon. Five, four, three, we have ignition. And liftoff of the first United Launch Alliance Vulcan rocket, launching a new era in spaceflight to the moon and beyond. Well, if all goes to plan, the Peregrine will touch down on February 23rd after taking off from Cape Canaveral. It is expected to become the first commercial mission to land on the moon as part of NASA's collaboration with private space companies. CNN Space and Defense correspondent Kristen Fisher, Fisher joins us now. And Kristen, tell us about this because I wasn't really aware of it. And then all of a sudden I saw amazing <laughs> pictures this morning and, and this is history. 
Yeah, Phil, this was such a significant launch. So many firsts. I mean, first of all, if successful, this will be the first time that an American spacecraft has landed on the surface of the moon since the end of the Apollo program back in 1972. That is how long it's been. But the big difference here is back then, that was a U.S. government NASA mission. This is not. This spacecraft was designed, built, operated by a private company called Astrobotic. And if it is successful, it'll be the first private company to land a spacecraft on the surface of the moon, something that only a very few countries have been able to do. And then the other big first here, Phil, is not just the spacecraft on top of the rocket, but the rocket itself, the Vulcan Centaur rocket. This is the first time it has ever flown. It was built by the United Launch Alliance, a joint venture between Boeing and Lockheed Martin. And it is incredibly significant for the Pentagon in particular because it is counting on this rocket to launch national security payloads and spy satellites in the future. Phil? Yeah, it's a huge moment. One of the most fascinating elements, though, in addition to what you would expect, delivering NASA scientific equipment, it's also taking mementos and the ashes of several people to the moon. What more can you tell us about this? Yeah, this bit has been so controversial in recent days. So two of the customers that are paying to have cargo or payloads on top of this rocket and inside this spacecraft are two companies called Celestis and Elysium Space. And they do what's called lunar memorials, the first of its kind. They're carrying little capsules containing cremated human remains for a lunar burial. And the Navajo Nation, the largest group of Native Americans in the United States, is very upset about this when they found out about this a few weeks ago because they say that this amounts to desecration of a sacred space to their culture and Navajo cosmology. The moon is sacred in Navajo cosmology. And so they appealed to the White House. The White House held a last minute meeting to try to uh, see what, if they could address some of the Navajo uh, the Navajo Nation's concerns, but uh, it was not enough, as you can see, to delay this flight because it was a successful launch in the wee hours of this morning, Phil. Had to be up at 2 a.m. And I have no doubt you probably were knowing how you do with space. Kristen Fisher, we always <laughs> appreciate it. it. Thank right. you, my friend. Well, the Supreme Court reinstates Idaho's strict abortion ban that prevents the procedure even in medical emergencies. One OBGYN here with us to talk about what that actually means for their practice. This morning, doctors in Idaho could face criminal charges for performing an abortion in almost all cases, and that includes emergency room doctors. Here's why. The Supreme Court is allowing the state's near-total abortion ban to take effect on Friday in a blow to the White House. Idaho law says physicians can only perform an abortion if it will prevent the death of the mother. That's the law in Idaho. The Biden administration is arguing that federal law requires emergency room doctors to provide what's known as stabilizing care, and that includes abortions if a patient's health is in serious jeopardy. Those are different standards, and the Supreme Court will hear this case in full in April. But until then, doctors and their patients have to abide by state law. Joining us now is Dr. Stacy Saib, an obstetrician, gynecologist, and maternal fetal medicine specialist at St. Luke's Health System in Boise, Idaho. Doctor, we appreciate your time, and I want to start there, the tension between what you feel you're bound by based on federal law versus what you are now grappling with based on state law and what that does in your approach to the job. Well, MTALA or the Emergency Medical Triage and Labor Act 
uh, is uh, nationwide. Uh, C- any hospitals who re- receive CMS money, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, must abide by this law, which basically protects um, and makes sure that hospitals will take care of patients who present either in labor or in a medical condition, regardless of payment, et cetera, et cetera. And they either have to be uh, taken care of there or sent to uh, a referring hospital um, that has a higher level of care. Now, um, what, what we're trying to do is try to figure out the types of things that we can treat as physicians uh, when it comes to uh, abortion-type care and medical emergencies in pregnancy. Um, I think there are a lot of things that can happen, especially infection, bleeding, um, that are very life-threatening to uh, women before a pregnancy is viable. And we want to make sure that uh, we're able to treat those without the fear of being prosecuted. We've asked the state to try to clarify through their laws, you know, what are these exceptions? And so far, we haven't gotten any response on that. And instead, you know, we've tried to use EMTALA as a, a, a place to um, make sure that we can treat our patients. Do you fear that you, right now, until the court decides, um, are facing the potential of criminal charges? If you follow EMTALA, the federal guidelines, that could put you in violation of the state law. Well, I'm not sure that that necessarily, yes, I mean, it could to a certain extent. It's not the first thing that I worry about. I worry about the health of the patients. I worry about, uh, you know, one of the things that we have to do is we have to make sure that we are, are, uh, we end up transferring a lot more patients out of state, uh, which is a huge inconvenience and expense uh, to the patient and their families. When you talk to your lawyers, What do they tell you? Do they have more concrete guidance? Do they have a better sense of kind of what the line is for you? Oh, not at all. Not at all. I mean, this line is really something that is medically driven. And I think, you know, we as providers have not had any say uh, whatsoever really in uh, helping define what, what these boundaries are. Every second counts, right? As an ER physician, as an OBGYN, et cetera. I wonder how this is playing. Yeah, I can. How this is playing out, for example, in emergency rooms, right? If you even have to second guess yourself as a physician and not just be thinking about the health of the patient, as you said, is your first priority, but also think about any jeopardy to you, how does that impact potential health and safety for patients? Oh, I think I think it delays treatment. Um, I think things that would have been, you know, addressed earlier uh, are are being delayed. People trying to find out, okay, uh, especially if it's someone who doesn't deal with it on a regular basis. As a referral center, we see this a fair amount, but at the same time, uh, other people are calling around trying to get advice, et cetera, and very afraid. You know, um, I think you know providers are between a rock and a hard spot. We've got you know the the possibility of uh, jail time on one hand, and the other is we, if we don't act quick enough, are we medically liable? Right. You take the Hippocratic Oath as physicians, and oh, what, a, what a predicament to be in. Yeah. I, I, just one quick one before I let you go. Is the, is the view right now that you have to wait until somebody is dying, and I understand there's probably some ambiguity in how you would define that, but before you can act? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I do think they, someone has to be really on on the doorstep of uh, being uh, severely ill uh, and or already possibly have uh, long term damage to their body, their fertility, uh, or, or other things like that. Dr. Stacy Saab, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Really helpful. Thanks for having me. Well, there's new reporting that takes us inside the mindset of Donald Trump on January 6th. Trump's own inner circle revealing his two-word response after learning Mike Pence was evacuated from the Capitol. And one of the officers who defended the Capitol, there you see him, Harry Dunn, joins us live. We'll ask him about that report and his decision to quit the force and run for Congress. They had to release the J6 hostages, they've suffered enough. They had to release them. I call them hostages. I have concerns about the treatment of January 6 hostages. Uh, I have concerns. We have a role in Congress of oversight over our treatments of prisoners. Uh, and I believe that we're seeing the weaponization of the federal government. Those comments, first from former President Trump and then from Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, are drawing intense backlash this morning. The rioters, of course, are not hostages. They're defendants in the government's January 6th cases. And this morning, one of the officers who defended the Capitol that day, well, he's now running for Congress. Harry Dunn will run for Maryland's 3rd Congressional District to replace retiring Democratic Congressman John Sarbanes. Dunn's campaign announcement features the attack at the Capitol front and center. He retired from the Capitol Police Force in December after receiving the Congressional Gold Medal and the Presidential Citizens Medal for defending lawmakers. Now, Dunn's decision to run comes as new, CNN, or as new reporting from ABC News reveals Special Counsel Jack Smith uncovered new details about Donald Trump's actions and attitude on January 6th. Now, according to ABC, former Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino told investigators that as violence intensified, Trump, quote, was just not interested in doing more to stop it. When Trump was told that then-Vice President Mike Pence was evacuated to, to a secure location inside the Capitol, Trump reportedly told an aide, quote, so what? Joining us now is Harry Dunn. Uh, sir, appreciate your time this morning. To start with, the, the comments that you heard at the top from the former president and Elise Stefanik, who, if you were to win your primary and win your general election, would be a colleague of yours inside the United States House, referring to uh, January 6th rioters as hostages. How do you respond to that? Hey, good morning, Phil. No, that's uh, right on course for them. I, I expected nothing less from, you know, those individuals making those statements. Um, I am glad that they do want to look in, into prison reform. You know, that's an issue that um, a lot of individuals have been complaining about for a long time. So we'd be happy to look into that. But uh, these individuals, a lot of them, the, the, I don't even say the defendants, the uh, the, the accused, excuse me, the prosecutor and the individuals have taken plea deals. They pled, they pled guilty. So they, they acknowledge their crime. So it's right on, it's right on, uh, on par for uh, Trump to make those comments and uh, at least to to parrot them. You know, I, I was curious once you announced, um, having covered the Hill, having watched kind of the last three years play out your presence and uh, your efforts to make sure that people didn't forget or didn't, whitewash what happened. When did you decide that you wanted to actually make a run for Congress? 
Well, you, you know, Phil, I, as the last 15, 16 years of my life, my adult life, I dedicated it to public service. So if you would have asked me before January 6th if I would have decided to run for office, then the answer was maybe, you know, after a full career and being able to retire. Um, you know, you said earlier I retired. No, I resigned. So, you know, being able to fully retire, um, then maybe we'll have that discussion. But you know, in the events of January 6th and honestly, everything that's happened afterwards, like I said, like you just said, the attempted whitewashing and the flat out lying and denying what we went through, the backtracking of the individuals of the body of Congress um, who refused to uh, fully acknowledge what happened. They did on January 6th that night and January 7th. Um, but sure, after Donald Trump got their ear, their tune changed a lot. You know, to that point, it was fascinating to watch. There's a new video released over the weekend by the Justice Department that shows what was happening on the House floor um, during those moments. I want to play that real quick. Okay. I've been a law enforcement Texas for 30 years. Talk a little louder. That's because you've never seen corruption like we have seen this last month. I'm ashamed. And I'm ashamed of my Congress people. Mike Pence is a traitor man he could have done the right thing and certify those uh, legislators electors and we wouldn't be standing here with a nine millimeter pointed at me right now what goes through your head when you see videos like that again you know i'm glad you said again because like i said i you know i was there we we saw that that's that's exactly what we saw that day and exactly what we saw from the lawmakers i think that was troy nails in that video yes. um who said that he's ashamed um i wish he would have said that publicly and not just on a cell phone footage that he i'm sure he hoped never got released but they know that those members they knew how bad it was they know and they knew then um so I, you know, it's, it's, it's par for the courts for them. They they know the truth, but they refuse to uh, say anything out loud that'll make the um, the Republican frontrunner, um, their leader, uh, look bad. Uh, I, I, you're in a crowded Democratic field. When you, when you look through uh, kind of the dynamics of your race, what do you think will set you apart? Obviously, your experience, what you've been through over the course of the last three years, um, it's the same central pitch that President Biden has uh, in running for re-election. But in this race specifically that you're looking at, what do you think sets you apart? Just, just my experience right now. Like, you know, I'm not a career politician. I'm not. But I am a, uh, a servant of the people. I've been a public servant. I'm a career uh, public servant. And I think that's what the people in Congress need is a person who has shown and will continue to demonstrate, you know, that they are listening to them and they will go to the floor in the halls of Congress and fight for them. And that's just that's what I'm about. And this moment that we're in, like I, I said, if January 6th didn't happen, then maybe we're not even having this conversation. But it did happen. And we I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we are one election cycle away from our democracy as we know it. And, you know, that, you know, that goes with all the issues that fall under the umbrella of democracy, a woman's right to choose, just like you just sold in your last segment. You know, we need to make sure that that is it, politicians don't have any business in, you know, the doctor's office when it comes to that common sense gun reform. All of those issues, to me, fall under the umbrella of democracy. And if we have a dictator um, on day one, you know, what, what would those what does it even matter when it comes to those other issues? Former Capitol Hill police officer, now Democratic candidate in Maryland's 3rd District. Harry Dunn, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Harry Dunn for Congress. Find out more. Thank you. Well, star-studded Golden Globes returned after a year of Hollywood strikes. The winners, the losers, the biggest moments. We've got that ahead. Also, rescue workers in Japan pulled a 90-year-old woman from the rubble 
124 hours after the deadly earthquake last week. The two-story house collapsed. She was inside. You can see the first responders shield the woman from cameras as she was being taken to the hospital Saturday night. A doctor told reporters her legs are injured, but she is well enough to have conversations. so many people who I probably forgot to thank. Oh my God, all of my agents and managers' assistants. To the people who answer my emails. Y'all are real ones. Thank you for answering my crazy, crazy emails. Can we just have a shout out for assistance everywhere, <laughs> always and in perpetuity? That was the bear actress Io Adebri at last night's 81st annual Golden Globes accepting her award for best performance by a female actor in a musical or comedy television series. Major awards also went to Succession and last summer's hit films Barbie and Oppenheimer. CNN's Elizabeth Wagmeister live in Los Angeles with more Up Early Tell Us Movies. We're, we're going to go through this a little bit. Start with movies. Was it what we expected in terms of who won? You know, it was and it wasn't. Oppenheimer won huge. That film walked away with five awards, a big win for director Christopher Nolan. Somehow, his first Golden Globe win ever, which is really shocking. Then big wins for actors Robert Downey Jr. and Killian Murphy. And, of course, they walked away with the big award, the best drama film. Now, this is the shocking part, Phil. Barbie only walked away with two awards, went into the night, of course, leading the nominations. Now, only walked away with an award for Billie Eilish for her song and the new category of box office and cinematic achievement. Now, even though this film didn't do as well as we predicted that it would, it's obviously not just a huge success at the box office. Barbie is a cultural movement. And actually, I spoke to Helen Mirren, who is the narrator of Barbie on the red carpet, and she spoke about that film's success. What does it mean that Barbie's getting so much recognition tonight? Oh, it's the greatest thing. It's fabulous. I mean, great, great for Greta, great for women, um, great for filmmaking in general. It broke so many rules. And she's absolutely right. You know, regardless of the wins and the trophies you bring home, this was a huge win for female filmmaking. Greta Gerwig becoming the only female director to have a billion-dollar movie. So there's so many wins aside from these awards, right? Yeah. And Margot Robbie being not only the star in it, but also having such a key part in even having purchased the rights to even have it made very much for women across the board. What about in TV? Who won a lot there? In TV, the big winner of the night was Succession. This is its farewell season. Typically, voters like to bid adieu to shows that are going away. And Succession walked away with four awards. Also, Beef, Ali Wong and Steven Yeun making history as the first actors of Asian descent winning in their categories. Elizabeth, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, this just in, a senior Hezbollah militant was killed by an Israeli drone strike on his car, in his car in southern Lebanon. That's according to a Lebanese security source. Wasim Tawil is the most senior Hezbollah militant to be killed by an Israeli strike since the onset of daily crossfire between the Lebanon-based group and Israeli forces on October 8th. It's obviously a very volatile situation on the northern border. We will keep you updated throughout the day as we learn more.
Yeah, we'll keep you posted on that. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. CNN News Central is after this. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.